0: Well, this is the start of a new series for Wellspring. We're um, moving on from John, which we've been in for the last 10 months, and going on to a series uh, I'm just calling Spiritual Warfare. And it's about basically the reality of Christians and uh, the supernatural. Of course, most of our society really is naturalistic, and we really don't have a place in our culture uh, for these kind of discussions, because we we don't really believe in them. Oddly enough, um, despite what the biblical evidence would say, most of the church really doesn't have a need for these conversations in their own minds as well. They would rather not have the conversations. Sometimes I wonder if it's fear, sometimes I wonder if it's other things, but whatever the case... These conversations tend not to be had in the church. So it's been a different series. Um, we're actually, as I'm recording this, we're three weeks into this series, and it's been a different series because I've I've tried to lead it in a way that was kind of Socratic. It was a, a dialogue um, with uh, with my people, and um, so as we've gone through passages, as we've have we've talked back and forth. Um, I've let them have questions, uh, share experiences, do other things that really have engaged them with this material. But because of that, um, it was important to me to protect, uh, protect my church from um, any information that they may not want uh, getting out on the podcast or for people to hear that they would be safe to do that. So I recorded the sessions uh, for my own personal recording so I could look back over them. But I said, uh, I told my people that I would not uh, place them on the podcast. So um, I'm re-recording these sermons as I go back over them uh, for you who are listening at home. And um, so I'm going to go through the same material. It'll be condensed, obviously, because I won't have people engaging with it. Uh, conversations, but I'm going to go through the same material and ask the same questions. So if you're listening to this, this might be a different experience for you to pull out your Bible, follow along at home um, with the passages I'm bringing up, and listen to the questions I'm asking, and maybe pause this and answer them yourselves and see which ones you can answer and how you would answer them. Uh, the important thing about this is this is a systematic theological discussion, And so we're all over the Bible, and um, I'm excited about that. You know, we spent 10 months in the book of John, and and it was wonderful. We loved that. We loved studying Jesus as John portrays him in his gospel. And um, it was a great time, but I'm also excited to do theology because I love theology. I love looking at the scriptures and what they have to say. And what they have to say on this topic is important, It's necessary, and I think more people have dealt with it than they realize. When it comes to this issue, um, I've been really shaped, really formed by uh, my mentor and really the man who uh, God used to bring me back into the church when I wasn't going to be part of the church anymore. It It was this man that God used to bring me back into the church. His name's Gary Brashears. He's a professor at Western Seminary and an elder at Grace Community Church in Portland. And he really shaped my theology on these issues. So I went through and did my own work um, as I was studying for this series, uh, reading the New Testament, reading Old Testament passages that are relevant to what we're talking about. But at the same time, it's hard to extract Gary's influence on, on me in this topic. So most of what you hear has been really deeply shaped by him. So I just wanted to let you know that in advance. Um, as we go through this, I've set up the series to go about seven weeks. And the first two weeks are on the connection of Christians and the demonic. What is their relationship? How do they relate to one another? Um, and, and what connection is there between uh, the way the demons have influenced the world and, and the demonic has influenced the world and how Christians are are supposed to live in it, right? What's what's the what should the relationship be between those two parties? And that's um, a big part of what we focus on these first two weeks. And then after that, we're going through the three enemies of the Christian, which I will not tell you now, but that will be the next section, which is three weeks long. And then we're ending with an Old Testament background that I'm calling gods and idols. And and that's really about the concept of idols and gods, and as it's presented in the Old Testament, and how this situation of spiritual warfare came into being. The scriptures don't give all the answers, um, and that's was God's design. But what He has told us is more than most people know, I think, and it's important to know what He has told us. So, as we begin this week, we're starting at the place of Christians. And the demonic, okay, this is week one. So here at week one, uh, when I opened, I just opened with a question to my people. And my question was this, we were, we were in our home together, there was just a few of us, and I asked them, how many of you would know what to do if there was a demon here right now? And so I ask you too, if there was a demon in your room right now as you listen to this, would you know what to do? Would you be able to handle it? Would you be prepared and equipped to do what you needed to do to take care of that if that were happening currently? Okay, and uh, almost without exception, everyone said no. I I'd have no no idea what to do, um, and I wouldn't be prepared to deal with it. Which is not a surprise. Uh, most people aren't. In fact, most people kind of shy away from this conversation even. Some of them are afraid. Some of them um, think that maybe they attract it by even talking about it. Uh, That's just not true. The reality is the demonic's going on all the time, uh, and we are mostly unaware of it. But we have to be equipped for when those situations come into our life. So in response to that, I said, okay, well, you may not know what to deal with it, But where would you go in Scripture to find out how to deal with it? If you wanted to find out how to deal with demons, where would you go in Scripture? And to that, uh, there was no answer. No one had answers for that question. And if you're at home, um, I hope you fare better. But my guess is you might be in the same place. That you don't know where you would go in Scripture to find out how to deal with the demonic So let's put those questions on hold for now, and we'll end up talking about this reality more next week as we do the next recording. But this first recording is going to be foundational about Christians and the demonic, so we have to ask at the most basic level, what are demons? What are demons? Think about all the different things you've heard and talked about that you've had told to you. What are demons? Biblically, where would you go to find out what are demons? Well, most people think of the idea of fallen angels. They think of this idea that angels who were rebellious fell from heaven, and then they became what we call demons. That is not the biblical answer. Biblically, we don't know what demons are. There is no Bible answer about where demons originate, Where they come from, nor what they are. But it is clear what we can perceive about them from the accounts in the Gospels is that they are evil, they are malicious, and they are personal. These are not impersonal forces. They have will, they will to do things, they have autonomy. In fact, in, in many cases in, in the New Testament, they have some control over their, their host, if you will, um, where they actually make them do things. They speak through the voices of the people they inhabit. Um, they do all the things that, that make it clear they are a personal being. But, the, but as far as the answer of what the Bible says, where they come from, there is no answer. There's no answer in the Bible. Okay, but tradition kind of holds on to this fallen angels, uh, this fallen angels idea that has been been talked about a lot um, throughout, you know, throughout the history. But what we can answer is what are angels, okay, and that's that's also an important question. What are angels, and where I go to start with that is in Hebrews one and two, okay, Hebrews one and two, Hebrews one and two. If you turn there, of course, in Hebrews 1, where it starts, is uh, talking about Jesus being greater than angels, right? Hebrews, the whole book, is is talking about Jesus being greater than all these different realities that people could attach themselves to. They could attach themselves to other things to focus on and, and to connect with whether that's the law or Moses or in this case in the in the first chapter it starts at the place of angels right angels are they worthy of worship and and the author of Hebrews says no they they're not Jesus is the one who's above even the angels right these angels are what and and because of that he ends up talking about what they are right he says at the beginning that that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his nature, right? And he sits down at the right hand of the majesty. And then it says, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And then it goes on and he he makes these comparisons. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son today, I I have begotten you. Or I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn, that's Jesus, into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him, right? And then verse 7, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So we know several things. One, they're kind of these ethereal beings, right? It says he makes them winds and flames of fire. They're these beings of, of spirit, not um, have a corporeal form. They're not material. Also from the word itself, angels, it comes from the Greek angelos. It, it means messenger. We know they're messengers just from uh, the etymology of the word. The word it, itself means messenger. So, And then that's true in Hebrew as well. And In the Old Testament, malach means angel. Uh, malach, which is the Hebrew word for angel, means messenger. So we, we know that they are messengers. But also, if you go down further to verse 13, it says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Verse 14, talking about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Hebrews 1.14 says explicitly they're ministering spirits. Their job is to serve those who will inherit salvation. So God as uses them um, for our sake is what it says, right? They, they minister to us. They minister um, to the people of God. And not only that, they obviously serve and worship God himself, right? We, we see that also clearly in Scripture, that these beings, angels, their purpose is to be ministering spirits who render service for the people of God. And that's what Hebrews 1.14 would say. The other thing we know, um, even though we can't necessarily qualify them as demons, because again, Scripture never says that explicitly, but if you go to Revelation 12, Revelation 12.9, this is a verse we'll come back to later. But right now it says this in verse 9 of chapter 12 in Revelation. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. His angels were thrown down with him. Okay, So, uh, Satan, here in this verse, is thrown down to the earth with his angels. So there's this idea of rebellious angels, or these angels who followed after Satan and against God. That is definitely true. That is definitely scriptural. The thing that is not said in scripture is that then therefore they became demons. But we know that there are fallen angels, and they are beings that are, uh, were at one point ministering spirits right and they rebelled against god and they were thrown down to the earth when they uh, aligned themselves with satan so that is clear okay so that's what angels are and that's quick obviously there's a a lot more that could be said but we're just looking at that quickly so we can get get on to the topics we want to talk about as we go through this series so then the question becomes okay so, we've talked kind of about these origin pieces of what angels and demons are. Um, we know demons are, like I said, personal beings and they're evil beings. The question is why is the world so willing to entertain demons and not turn to the true God, right? We know that God is there, these people could worship him, they could be connected to him, uh, he's made every necessary. Every necessary um, requisite to turn to God, he has made it happen himself. All they have to do is believe, and they would find salvation. They would turn to the true God. And yet, the world is so willing and so quick to turn to these demons and, and to other things away from God. And the question is, why is that the case? According to Scripture, why is that the case? Where would you go if you're thinking about why the world is so connected to the demonic rather than the the true God? Why they're so quick to turn to those demonic realities? Well, I've got several places I would go. The first is 2 Corinthians 4.4. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4.4. If you go to 2 Corinthians, you'll see... In four four, this is Paul talking about the ministry they've received. And he's talking about how his gospel, the gospel that he shares, is veiled to those who are perishing. Why is it veiled? Verse 4. This is chapter 4. Verse 4. It says, In those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world... Who's the God of this world? The God of this world is Satan. Satan is the God of this world, and we'll talk more about that later. Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. (laughs) Christ is the image of God, and yet they cannot see that image because their minds have been blinded. So, what this passage is saying is at one level, why are they so unwilling to turn to the true God and so willing to turn to demons? Um, in this case, 2 Corinthians 4 4, they're blinded. They're blinded. They cannot. Because they cannot see it. The God of this world has blinded their minds. So for unbelievers who are part of this world system, they can't see the light of of the glory of Jesus. And that is something that is not their fault. That is something that has happened to them. It's a condition that they are under and they cannot change because the God of this world has blinded them. Okay. But that's not the only portrait, right? That's not the only portrait that scripture gives about why the world is so quick to entertain demons. Where else would you go? A great wrathful passage, Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 18. being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they, that's men, even though men knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What's this passage trying to say? Let me read one more piece here, going on to verse 25. It says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What's Paul trying to say in this passage? What he's trying to say is this. They willfully chose the, the demonic. They chose creatures. They chose idols over God. So while they are blinded, at the same time, it's a willful decision. It's made clear in this passage. God made himself evident to them. It's since the beginning of the world, it was clear that his power and his divinity were were obvious. You could see it in the wonder of things that had been made. So there was no excuse for men, no excuse for men to not follow the creator God. And it says, even though they knew him, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. No, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they preferred to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That is not blindness in this passage. That is willfulness. And isn't that the way of things, though? It's, it's a combination, right? They are blinded. Second Corinthians 4 is clear. They're blinded by the God of this world, by Satan. And at the same time, the world willfully, willfully chooses the demonic over God. They choose not to honor him as God or give thanks. The world has chosen to worship other gods. So we have willfulness, we have blinded. Those are both working at the same time. One is not true to the exclusion of the other. There is a blindedness and there is a willfulness. And the second thing I would, or the, excuse me, the third thing I would say is that there's a benefit to the demonic, which is people love the demonic because there's usually some benefit, right? It's not just all bad things. There often is some, some power or some uh, knowledge or some... A trade-off that happens. Yes, there is is often bad things that come with it, but, but most people don't do something if it's not to in some sense to their benefit. And I think with the demonic in particular, that's true. That is true. That there is a benefit to it. And of course, as a Christian, it's it's easy to sit here and scoff um, and be like, well, what benefit could be worth it? But, you know, people have all kinds of things we do for, for menial benefit um, that that ultimately is, is bad for us, right? That ultimately will lead to our destruction. That's kind of the human way. Um, and, and I do think there is a benefit often to it. And, and you know, you even see in, in some of these passages when you read the demonic that they'll have supernatural strength. They'll have um, a supernatural knowledge or wisdom of things, right? <clears throat> and God clearly doesn't want us to, to interfere or connect with the demonic, um, you know, to, to attach ourselves to that because he knows that those are fleeting things. Those are, those are things that are not done in goodness and righteousness. And of course, God himself gives us true power. God himself gives us true knowledge, true wisdom. And, uh, the demonic is a, a, a mere mockery of it, right? It's, it's, it's hardly worth anything. um, but humans do they do turn to that, okay, and then lastly, I'd say this, they're under Satan's power, they're under Satan's power, they are in his kingdom, and so therefore, like second corinthians four four said he's the God of this world, they can't escape him, they cannot escape him, they're under his power, they're part of his kingdom, part of his domain. And one of the things you'll know is, you know, as a subject in a kingdom, you're subject to the king whether you like it or not. You know, you may not want to be. You don't really get a choice. You don't really get a choice. They're in Satan's kingdom and they're under his power. So I'd say those four things kind of encapsulate why the world is so connected to demons and why it won't turn. It's that they're blinded. It's it's willful desire on their part. There is benefits they receive from the demonic, and lastly, they're under Satan's power. They couldn't leave even if they wanted to, because they're in his kingdom. But I think one of the things about spiritual warfare we have to remember um, is the reality that, that they are those subjects, right? They are ultimately subjects of the kingdom, and they're not they're not the king of the kingdom. It's not uh, them who we war against, right? That's what Ephesians 6 wants to make so clear, right? Go to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, verse 10. You go to Ephesians 6, verse 10. It's this passage we all have heard so many times, this armor of God passage, right? Our struggle, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against these people who are subjects in Satan's kingdom because they're not the power structure of it. In fact, they're captive to it. They're captive to Satan's kingdom. So our struggle isn't against them, it isn't against flesh and blood, it's against the rulers, against the powers against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And therefore, he goes on, right, take up the armor, because you will be able to resist. You'll be able to stand firm, right? That's why, because you're, you're not battling human powers. You're battling the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, So that's our goal, that's our job, that we could help free these captives, help free them from their connection to the demonic that they are under the power of, that they are captive to, that even though they are willfully a part of the kingdom, they are also captive to it. They have no way of escape without the Lord, right? Okay, next question. If we go on, when we go on from there, then the question becomes, what is Jesus doing in his ministry as it relates to demons? Why are all the exorcisms there, right? Why are the deliverance stories there in the Gospels? Okay. What is Jesus doing? I think there's several passages we can turn to to talk about Jesus and what his relationship to the demonic is, how he relates to them. Um, I think, I think the best is the strongman passage. Um, if, you've, if you've probably heard that passage before about binding the strongman, okay? It's an important passage because it, I think it is key to understanding what Jesus' ministry is as it relates to the demonic realm, as it relates to the kingdom of Satan. So we'll turn there. That's Matthew 12. It actually is in all three of the synoptic gospels. Matthew 12 is where we're going to turn because I have several other things I like to point out while we're there. Uh, But the parallel passages are in Mark 3 and Luke 11 in the other two synoptic gospels. But we'll be looking at Matthew 12. So turn in your Bible to Matthew 12. Matthew 12. Start in verse 22. It says, A demon possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And Jesus healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? Okay, Beelzebul. Who's Beelzebul? Uh, This is a reference to Satan. Satan. It's another name for Satan. It's actually an Old Testament word. It's just a transliteration into uh, Greek from the Hebrew, and it it means exalted Baal, right? You've heard of the god Baal in the Old Testament. Baal means Lord or Master. Zabul is a word that is for lifting up or exalting. So it it means exalted Lord, right? It, it, that's what it means. And it's, it came to be used as a satanic uh, reference it came to be used as a satanic reference because of Baal being this foreign God this Canaanite God uh, that was obviously not connected to the God of Israel he was opposed to the God of Israel he was this foreign deity <clears throat> uh, interestingly if you've ever heard the the term that most people think of Beelzebub right Beelzebub uh, that's that's um A mockery of Beelzebul. Beelzebul is exalted Lord, but as a sign of mockery, it's changed to Beelzebul, right? Or excuse me, Beelzebub. Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies, right? Lord of the Flies, if you've heard that term. Um, And of course, the the famous book, Lord of the Flies, is Beelzebub. Um, The funny thing is people think of it as this like demonic power, uh, you know, Beelzebub, he's so powerful, and he's this demonic ruler, and um, it's very scary. He's lord of the flies, and that's when you see a fly around something, it could be demonic, and, and it's just real scary, and flies are kind of weird. No, that that's not the point. <laughs> it's not the point that he's really powerful. It's actually saying um, it's a mockery of him. He, he's the lord of the flies. He's the lord of nothing. He's the lord of dung, right? Where do flies go? They like to hang around poop. Uh, that 's the that 's what he's the lord of right that 's the point it 's not supposed to be some big scary um wow he 's really powerful and he 's in control and there 's demonic signs of flies no it, it's he's the ruler of nothing he 's meaningless he's he's a a mite he 's a fly he 's nothing right and that 's how the Jewish people use beelzebub it 's a mockery of it because who who could compare to the God of Israel right who could compare? Certainly not Beelzebub um, that's just an aside sorry I can't help I, I love I love names I love they have meaning they're important so I always spend time on them when I have the chance um, so going on Jesus says, listen I, I'm not casting these things out by Beelzebub, right this ruler of the demons I'm not casting this out by them obviously because if I was I'd be fighting against my own kingdom. If I was under Beelzebul, and I was working for his kingdom, I wouldn't be fighting against my own kingdom. If you're fighting against your own kingdom, your kingdom cannot stand. And then he goes on to say, and if I'm doing it, casting out demons by Beelzebul, who are your sons casting them out by? Because there were also other exorcisms happening right? in Israel in those days. So he's saying these sons of the Pharisees were also casting out demons. Demons by God, right? That's the assumption. And he's saying that they're going to be your judges. They're going to be your judges because they're casting them out too, just like me. They they will know the truth of what I do. And then he goes on to say, verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, right? The kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he says this phrase, and here's the strong man piece. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? I've heard this tra- uh, interpreted different ways. Uh, the interpretation that I think makes the best sense, though, in my opinion, is that uh, the strong man is Satan. The strong man is Satan. And then this is hard, I think, for people to come to grips with. In, and I think primarily for this reason. Jesus lays himself out in this parable as the robber. People don't like putting Jesus in that position, in a, even in a parable. They don't like the idea of Jesus being the, the thief in this sense, right? He's the one entering the house and stealing property. But it actually makes sense of what he's saying he's doing. If the strong man is Satan, what is his house? The strong man's house is the world. And if the strong man is Satan and his house is the world, what's his property? It's people. It's people. Jesus is the one entering the strong man's house and carrying off his property. So he has to first bind the strong man. Okay, so what is Jesus doing in his ministry as it relates to the demonic? What is he doing with all these exorcism? In a big part, what he's doing is binding the strong man, right? It, 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 the strong man is Satan, it, it, he, he's not powerless, he's not meaningless. There's power and weight behind him. He's strong. He's, he's a strong man. But there's one stronger than him here. And he's able to bind him. And that's Jesus. The one entering the home and binding the strong man is Jesus. He's binding the strong man when he, when he does these deliverances, when he does these exorcisms. But also, when does he, in a unique way and probably in the ultimate sense, when does he bind the strong man? at the cross. At the cross is the the uh, best example. It is the, the excellent, most excellent example of him binding the strong man. Right? And what's the answer to that? Okay, after he's bound the strong man, then he can plunder his house. Jesus is plundering his house by doing what? Who was Who did I say his property was? It was people. Jesus is plundering his house by taking people out of his kingdom. That's the interpretation, especially in light of what's just been said, that I think makes the most sense. I've heard uh, other interpretations um, where Jesus is the strong man. And the whole point of this, you know, who can enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Well, Jesus is the strong man. And, And what's the answer to that question? Who could do that? Well, no one. He's too strong. That's the point, right? He, he's too strong. No one's going to plunder him because no one can actually bind him because he's that strong. That's, that's the interpretation I've heard that, that says Jesus is the strong man. Well, Jesus is using this hypothetically because no one can actually bind him. So no one's going to plunder him. You're safe. You're safe in his house because he's the strong man and, and no one's going to bind him. To me, that ignores the rest of what's just been said about this divided kingdom, about who he's casting out spirits by. Um, to me, it, it makes far more sense uh, to look at the interpretation and put Jesus in the spot of the robber. And I think it actually makes sense when you think about what Jesus is doing in his ministry. right? Remember 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, what I said. It said, the God of this world. Satan is the God of this world. Jesus is entering the strong man's house, entering Satan's kingdom. And he's bound him and is carrying off his property. And when he specifically does the the ultimate act of binding is at the cross. And ever since that moment, 2,000 years ago, Jesus has been at work plundering Satan's house. Anytime someone gets saved, Jesus is plundering Satan's home. And I think that makes sense in terms of what Jesus has been saying. And we have to remember that our job, our job as Christians, is to help plunder Satan. Our job is to help carry off his things. And it's a weird analogy. And I know it, it probably makes some people uncomfortable, but that's what Jesus is saying. Our job, as it relates to the demonic and specifically following the example of Jesus, is to, to bind the strong man to deal with the demonic and then find people to plunder out of Satan's kingdom. Right? That's what God is at work doing, is to bring people out of the domain of darkness, like Colossians 1 says, out of the domain of doc- darkness and bring them into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's what the Father is at work doing. Jesus is, is the one who came and bound the strong man and his house is being plundered. We have to be at that work. Okay. <clears throat> and then it goes on to the unpardonable sin in the next area, which um, is hard for me to skip. I'm going to skip it now. I didn't in my sermon uh, when I actually gave it with, with the church. But I'm going to skip it for now because I've already been going... For about forty minutes at this point, um, but it's it's important. It's an important passage, and um, and I think it's highly misinterpreted often uh, when people come to that that blasphemy against the spirit. Uh, whatever the case, I'll I'll give you just uh, I'll give you just a quick my quick opinion on it. The point about blasphemy of the spirit is rejecting the spirit's testimony, and and it's in the context of what Jesus has just said. They are telling people that the spirit of God who is driving out demons and freeing people from demonic slavery is the spirit of Satan itself. That is the blasphemy against the spirit. Um, That they are attributing the works of Satan to God himself. Or or, or the other way around, I should say. They're attributing the, the works of God himself to Satan. And, and that's the point, is that this blasphemy against the Spirit is, is to reject what the Spirit is at work doing. It's to reject what the Spirit is at work doing. And what he's doing in this moment, if you understand Jesus talking about himself, what he's doing is showing who he is. The Spirit is at work showing who Jesus is. The blasphemy against the Spirit is to not believe the Spirit's testimony about who Jesus is. They are seeing Jesus cast out demons, and the Spirit, by doing the work of casting out the demon, is testifying that Jesus is the Messiah who was to come. And they are not believing, even with the Spirit testifying by the works, to who Jesus is. That blasphemy against the Spirit cannot be forgiven it means it cannot be forgiven why can it not be forgiven because they don't believe okay it cannot be forgiven but can it be repented of is a different question and the answer is yes how is it repented of you believe it's repented of by believing if you are not believing you're blaspheming against the Spirit and you cannot be forgiven remaining in the state of unbelief. But you can repent of that state and believe and then you'll be forgiven because you're believing. But blasphemy against the Spirit remaining in the state of unbelief cannot be forgiven because the one thing that that offers forgiveness, believing in Jesus, you refuse to do. But if you change your heart, If you change your attitude to Jesus, if you believe in him, you come to faith, then you're no longer in that place of blasphemy against the Spirit. You've actually accepted the Spirit's testimony, and therefore you've repented and are forgiven. But as long as you remain in that blasphemy against the Spirit of unbelief, you will not be forgiven. I know it's confusing. I know it's confusing. That was my quick version, by the way. Um, so that should give you a sign of how normally, how quick I am on things, because that was my quick version of that. Um, let's go on. (laughs) So there's blasphemy against the spirit just quickly. Uh, I do want to keep going just because there's one more piece it talks about, right? They go on and, and they talk about craving a sign, right? They want to see a sign from him. Jesus says, I'm only going to give you the sign of Jonah. Uh, I'm going to be three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. That's what the son of the ma- son of man will be doing. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign of Jonah. And it says the men of Nineveh are going to condemn this generation because they, re- they repented at Jonah's preaching. And yet here this generation won't repent even when someone greater than Jonah is here. And then same thing. He repeats it about the queen of the south. They're going to judge it. Uh, She's going to judge this generation because she wanted to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And yet here's someone wiser than Solomon could ever be. And this generation won't listen to him. And then it says this, verse 43. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Okay, what's the point there? Well, when it comes to the spiritual side of things, there's other things to be said. But the spiritual side of things, just because an unclean spirit is sent out of someone doesn't mean that everything becomes perfect for them. It doesn't mean that, hey, you know, if we could just go around and cleanse the demonic out of everyone, then then everyone would probably be okay and we could get them all saved. That's not what it's saying. They actually need to believe because what happens when you believe? Well, the the Holy Spirit indwells you. And when the Holy Spirit indwells you, the house is is not going to be unoccupied, swept, and put in order. It will be occupied, swept, and put in order, right? The spirit will be dwelling there. But when we just cleanse demons, or if we were to just go around and and deliver everyone, the demon says they go through waterless places seeking rest. And they're like, you know what? I'm going to go back to that person I was at before. Oh man, this looks pretty nice. It it used to be so untidy. And and now it's like kind of a nice place. They, They upgraded things. They renovated. Man, maybe I should get some of my buddies to come stay. And man, you know, I'm kind of the quiet one, right? My buddies like to party and I'm kind of the quiet guy. So maybe I'll go find my other demon friends and and we'll all come live here, right? That's what it says. And it ends up that the last state of that person who you thought you were helping by getting rid of their demon becomes worse than it was in the first place. You have to remember that Ultimately, the goal is not just deliverance right The goal is not just we got to get rid of the evil spirit. The goal is we find people coming out of kingdom uh the kingdom of Satan right that they're saved that they leave Satan's kingdom and come to the kingdom of light Jesus' kingdom because with without that, they're still under Satan's power ultimately aren't they Just getting rid of the demon is a short-term fix. It's short-sighted. It will not fix the condition of their soul, and they will still be a part of the kingdom of Satan until they believe, until that veil of 2 Corinthians 4 is removed and they see Jesus. Until that happens, they're still part of his kingdom. So, that's just something I wanted to mention while we were in Matthew 10. As we're already, or excuse me, Matthew 12, while we were in Matthew 12 already here. Okay. <clears throat> Another example. This is good. Let's go to Colossians 2. Colossians 2. Colossians 2 makes a similar point. This one I'll do quicker than I did Matthew 12. Colossians 2. If we go to Colossians 2... We'll start in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Okay? He has made us alive... Together with him. This is the Father. One thing you'll learn, I hope, if you listen to me long enough, uh, good reading skills. you got to think about these pronouns, right? Think about who they are. He made you alive together with him. Who's the he? That would be the Father. Who's the him? That would be Christ. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he the Father made you alive together with him, Christ. okay the Father for has forgiven all our transgressions. he canceled out the certificate certificate of debt which was hostile to us and he took it out of the way. The Father took it out of the way, nailed it, by nailing it to the cross okay. And then verse 15. What's the main point of this sentence? Again, Good reading skills. you got to know dependent and independent clauses. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. That is not the main idea of the sentence. It's not the main verb. Right? It's a dependent clause. It starts with when. The main point is he made a public display of them. When did he make a public display of him? That is answered here. When he had disarmed them. Rulers and authorities is language for spiritual powers, right? That language of rulers and authorities Paul uses often to refer to demonic powers, okay? And if you don't know this, Colossians and Ephesians are are closely related, about anywhere between a third and a half of the verses um, have the same content. Uh, Many of them are really close in language even, and so they're really closely related as two books. Uh, and he uses rulers and authorities in both of them to refer to demonic powers, okay? And you'll see it. You see it even more clearly in Ephesians. So when God had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Who's the through him? Through Christ, right? The father triumphed over the demonic powers through Jesus, okay? When did he disarm them? When did he disarm them? When did he make a public display of them? Well, my guess is it's coming right off the thought of what Paul has just stated in verse 14. God took these things out of the way by nailing them to the cross. And in that same moment of nailing it to the cross was the moment he had disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them. That's the irony. That's the power. That's the beauty. That's, in many ways, the tragedy of this moment of the cross. Jesus is on public display. Jesus is on public display before the world in shame. When it says he made a public display of them, what's it referring to? It's not a nice picture. It's that he shamed them. The Father shamed the rulers and authorities. When did the Father shame the rulers and authorities? When Jesus was being shamed. Jesus is on the cross as a public display of shame. And it's actually like we read about in John when we talked about it in our series. That moment, that moment of his crucifixion is actually the moment of his glorification in John. Jesus sitting on his throne is actually in John, Jesus nailed to the cross. Jesus is enthroned on the cross. It's him sitting on his ruling seat, to be nailed to the cross that's the beauty and the pain of that that picture in John colossians is making a point in a similar way when jesus is nailed to the cross everything tells us everything that we can see everything material before us in our vision is telling us jesus is on a shameful public display jesus is making he is he has been made a public display of shame and repudiation and hatefulness. He has been made a public display of. He's up on that cross, naked. They've stripped him down, and everyone looks upon his naked form, bloodied and beaten, and, and uh, it, by all standards the world has, this man is a condemned man. He is bloody and beaten and naked and shamed. And here in Colossians 2, it says, no, when Jesus was made a public display, actually what was happening was God was making a public display of the rulers and authorities. When Jesus was on the cross, the Lord was shaming the demonic powers. Jesus on the cross disarmed them. And it was God's triumph over the demonic powers through Jesus. Powerful. Powerful words. Disarmed is an important word here. Disarmed is an important word because does disarmed mean there's no power? It doesn't. It doesn't mean that. It means there is still power that these demonic rulers and authorities have, but they have been disarmed. Our victory is assured. Jesus wins. But that does not mean that the demonic powers will not try to destroy us in the meantime. The war is won. But the battles still are playing out, right? There's no way Jesus loses. But that doesn't mean there's not many battles left that we can lose. Okay, so we are both assured of our victory and committed to fighting the battles. That's what we have to do. We have to do that. We cannot say that this issue is just totally settled the triumphalism that often happens in Christianity is. It's just Jesus is done. Jesus' work is done. There's nothing left to be done. That's not true. There is a lot left to be done. Jesus is still at work. It says he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us and of course one day he will return to truly execute his victory. So there's still work to be done. There's still work Jesus is doing. But his victory is assured. The cross is the assurance of his victory. It was it was the victory of the war. There's no way that God does not come out on top. But there are plenty of battles to be had on this earth still. And we can lose them, which is why we... We need to have these conversations, why we need to, to have these moments to reflect and think about our enemies, the enemies of, the Christian, of Christianity, the enemies of the Christian faith, these powers that are against us, and how we can deal with them by the model of Jesus. We've got to continue to have these conversations. Okay. I know I could probably talk forever on any topic you could give me, so we're almost done. Let's look at, you know what, I'm going to save this for for next week. In our actual service, we ran out of time too. And this is about an hour into the recording now, so I think we'll stop here as well. And we'll pick up with these at the beginning of our next recording, just like we did in our actual service. Um, but what I want to end with uh, will be some looking at some examples of Jesus' exorcisms, looking at some examples of his deliverance ministry, just looking at some passages and seeing what we can glean from them. Okay, But as we end now tonight, um, I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you with that last image we looked at about Jesus' public shame. It was actually his victory, and we have to remember that. We have to remember that we too, by all accounts, can look weak and meaningless and insignificant to the world as the church. And yet we have power, we have wisdom, we have all the things of God uh, in ways that they cannot possibly fathom, in ways that they are blinded to, according to the Bible. We have the very presence of God among us and in us. So just remember uh, that these conversations, I know, uh, maybe you're filled with fear around this issue. Uh, But I hope by the end of this series, you'll have learned about the power and authority we walk in as Christians. That we don't have to fear. And that doesn't mean we won't suffer, right? Look at Jesus. In his suffering, he won the greatest victory that has ever been won. So, don't lose heart. Trust even in these evil days that the Lord is at work and that we are at work plundering his house. The Lord is advancing his kingdom and we are at work doing it as well. So I pray tonight, Lord, for everyone who's listened to this recording, I pray you would bless them You would keep them, that they would be challenged by your word, that where their theology needs to be challenged, it would be challenged. Where their hearts need to be convicted, they'd be convicted. Where they need to be encouraged, would they be encouraged, God? Thank you for your word. It is a blessing. It is a privilege to be able to study it and understand it. Thank you for giving it to us so that we might see your face by hearing your voice. We love you. We pray all these things in your precious Son's name and by the mighty power of your Spirit that dwells within us. In Jesus' name, amen.